This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Hi, everyone. I hope you're well. You know, listeners often ask how they can help us create more stories, which is really great. The Wild is a joint production of myself and KUOW Public Radio. And you can support this vital work by checking out our show notes. And you'll find a link there about contributing small monthly amounts to my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, through Patreon. Become a part of the wild community and help fuel the next adventure. Thank you. Enjoy the episode. David Johnson wanted to go camping alone. It was the late 60s. He was 11 years old and started hiking out not far from his home in southern Minnesota. And I had my little backpack right on in my canvas pup tent. You know, canvas pup tents are kind of heavy for a little guy. And so, but I like, I'm going to do this. And so it was probably a quarter mile trail into this place. This young farm kid was looking to enjoy a night under the stars. The moon was coming up, a nice warm night. It was absolutely perfect. He set up his tent and spent the evening hiking and exploring along the river. As it got darker, he crawled into his tent for the night. In the moonlight, an owl came. I didn't, at the time, I didn't know what species it was. But it came and landed on my tent, on the moonlit end of my tent. And it called for 20 minutes. inches from my face. I was inside the tent. It was outside. David froze and listened as the calls echoed across the water. It was an eastern screech owl. And David could feel it vibrating each time it called out. And I thought, you know, the the owl could sit anywhere in the trees around here, but it's sitting on my tent. And it's for a long time and it's calling. It's calling to me. And so I didn't pick owls, they picked me. And so ever since then, they've been constant companions and friends. David is now 65, and he's made a life and career of that friendship with owls. He founded the Global Owl Project to protect endangered owl species all over the world. There are two important days in your life. The day that you're born and the day you find out why. I know why I was born for the owls. So I'm going to work with owls until my very last breath. And one lucky owl species that's been David's main focus for these past 12 years is the little burrowing owl. Burrowing owl is uh, about a quarter pound in weight, you know, 175 grams. So not much to them. And they are about six inches tall. They have long, relatively long legs compared to other owls. As you might guess, these tiny little owls live underground. But a curious domino effect has caused a worrying and widespread loss of their subterranean homes. So David's on a rescue mission to save the burrowing owl. When we first started, there was three or four pairs. Wow. Yeah. What year was that? 
Well, it was 2007. We figured, like, if we don't do something, we'll lose them. And we, we certainly would have by 2010. There wouldn't have been any. This rescue mission involves some chemical weapons, an old military base, and a very large plunger. It's a story about one man's love affair with a mysterious little creature, and the things they've taught him about what they need to survive. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to The Wild. I'm getting into David's truck. All right. And he has a plastic owl glued to the dash. Woo! Look at that. Yeah, that's our first owl. We're at one of the least likely places to look for wild animals, the Umatilla Chemical Weapons Depot in northern Oregon. During World War II, large bombs and other ammunition were stored here on this site, and it's pretty eerie. We're driving past a couple of old brick buildings, but they look a bit odd. All the bricks are lined up vertically instead of the normal horizontal way. David tells me that's because this, vertically, is the weakest way to build a structure. And so these once held uh, gunpowder, right? And so if they ever blew up, the idea is we wouldn't want to send projectiles for a long ways away. Rather, it's like a giant marshmallow. It kind of goes poof, and then it collapses. Whoa. So they're structurally built weakest possible. We're here because this is David's research area. The military base has been decommissioned and all the weapons are gone now, but at the time, this was a heavily fortified base. Well lit, shoot on site, no questions asked. Really? Yeah, if you went inside there, you're, it was, you know, that was high security. But a benefit to all that security meant that the ecosystem was protected shut off from invasive species or development or people. The base is nearly 20,000 acres and looks almost untouched. This is steppe desert country, too hot and dry for trees, so it's covered with tall grasses and little shrubs like sage. It would almost look completely natural if it wasn't for all the bunkers sticking out of the ground that used to house deadly weapons. You might think that all this military activity of the past would keep wildlife away, but that wasn't the case, and something pretty interesting evolved. Burrowing owls are native to this kind of ecosystem, and a large population lived on the base. But the numbers had been crashing over the last few decades, and the reason is a rather odd twist of fate involving some of the local residents, badgers, pronghorns, and coyotes. Burrowing owls don't actually, well, burrow. Yes, they live underground, but they don't dig their holes. Badgers do it for them. Well, badgers dig their own burrows, abandon some of them, and then the owls take advantage and move in. And the burrows are absolutely essential if you're a burrowing owl. It's where young are raised in family groups. This shrubby kind of desert is also home to pronghorn antelope, a really elegant little fast-footed mammal that looks like a small deer. But their numbers were dropping. And it didn't take long for wildlife experts to see the weapons depot, all the security, and that lovely big fence as a great place to start a pronghorn nursery. So in 1969, pronghorn were introduced onto the depot to serve as a source population to be later reintroduced to other areas of the state. 
The Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife brought in 17 pronghorns, two adult males, 10 adult females, and some juveniles. As the population grew, uh, as with a lot of other antelope species, there is one dominant male and a harem of females. And so he passed his genes on very substantially. The pronghorn population grew fast at first, but then over time started to crash due to genetic inbreeding because of that one dominant breeding male. And without genetic diversity, a population can be doomed because of physical abnormalities and increased susceptibility to disease. But here's the thing. The biologists at the time didn't think it was inbreeding. They thought it was the coyotes eating the precious pronghorns. The coyotes were to blame. So they started trapping coyotes in a big way. And in the process, badgers were caught as bycatch to that project effort. And it zeroed out the badgers. Okay, the burrowing owls depended on the badgers for the holes. So no badgers, no holes. No holes, no burrowing owl nest sites. Burrowing owls population crashed. No badgers, no burrows, no owls. Something had to be done. So that got the artist started on an artificial burrow as a rescue mission. And a rescue mission it was. When David came to the depot 12 years ago, there were only three or four owl pairs left, which meant the population would have become extinct in just a couple of years if nothing was done. It was the start of a remarkable effort to bring back the burrows to save the owls. Davy wants to show me the operation. We show our ID at a military checkpoint and cross through a tall chain-link fence and drive up to one of the bunkers. The scene looks like something from a movie set, like War of the Worlds. Each bunker is about 100 feet long and covered in earth and vegetation erupting from the desert floor. Grasses and shrubs have grown and cover them all, but the concrete facade and thick metal door give away their military past. David and his team call them igloos. There are about 1,000 of them here at the depot, all perfectly spaced out in military fashion. We're in, we're in one of the igloos. Before the depot was decommissioned, an igloo like this one housed some incredibly dangerous materials, starting during World War II. And they had storage in here of 500-pound bombs and other ammunitions, and then lots of other clothing and other things that were stored in these. And after World War II, then they stored some chemical weapons in some of these. And so uh, mustard agent sarin gas. In 1993, a UN resolution banned all use of chemical weapons. So a large furnace was built on the site to destroy all the munitions. The incinerator started burning in 2004 and ran 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until 2011, when the last of the chemicals were gone. The igloo we're now standing next to is still used as storage, but for some quite different items since David arrived. His artificial owl burrows, along with a slew of other field supplies. The burrows were specially invented for the owls. They consist of a five-gallon bucket with a ten-foot-long tube attached to the bottom. The whole thing is buried underground, except for the opening of the tube, which becomes the entrance. An owl walks down to get into their cosy new home. But think of it as a recovery tool, because we're really trying to save those owls that are involved. This isn't just really about like putting up nest boxes for bluebirds. 
This is about finding specific sites that we want to protect and enhance owls. And for a mating pair, these are luxury digs, ready-made owl condos. A mating pair makes one of these burrows a home, a place to raise their family, and they'll come back to it year after year, the same couple. They return to the depot each March to mate and raise their offspring until they leave again in October. But where they went after that for the winter was never really known, and it became part of David's research here to find out. David tags every newborn owl on the depot so we can track them from year to year. And it's part of the reason we're here at this time of year, June. Chick season. We hop back in his truck to head to one of the sites. So the site we're going to go to, it's probably a 150-yard walk, 100-yard walk. Okay. We leave the igloo behind and drive our way across the old depot, past a couple dozen of the now empty igloos, and we stop at the end of a dirt road close to the edge of a fence. All set? Okay, here we go. As we're walking away from the cars and towards the burrow, we spot my first burrowing owl, a male standing guard. So you'll see that his forehead and his back is a little bit more bleached by the sun, so he's paler. Oh, what a beauty. This, and he's a tough guy. This guy's six years old, and he's just not having it when I went to trap him. Yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. And so he's a... He's oh, he's a, locked onto us for sure. He probably saw us even when the trucks pulled up. Our sure. Their yeah. eyesight must be phenomenal. Yeah, I, I think they recognize my license plate. <laughs> <laughs> they probably do. David has spent an awful lot of time out here creating owl real estate in the depot. 92 artificial burrow sites in total. And it's working. This year, there are 62 mating pairs. It's the most I've ever had. It's because it was a mild winter, the grass is short. So the owls have good access to the prey. So they can catch deer mice and pocket mice and pocket gophers and kangaroo rats. It's a team effort for the owl couples. Females spend most of the time, from March to October, inside the dark underground burrow protecting and feeding the newborns. While the males rarely enter, they're out hunting and delivering food back to the family. It's called biparental care, when the male provides food and the female is the caretaker. We get to the entrance of the burrow, and it looks like this male has been a successful hunter. Yeah, that's an 11-lined June beetle that he brought in last night as a prey item. So the males, when they bring them in, they won't kill them. They'll be crippled. So when the female comes in, comes out of the tunnel, she'll say, oh, that's the fresh food. It's still kind of wiggling. These owls may be very small, but make no mistake, they're designed as expert hunters. There are tendons that go around the elbow uh, outside, and so that as an owl bends its leg, its feet get tighter. When we hold something in our hands, our hands get tired, okay? And sooner or later, we can't hold it anymore. Owls have a mechanism, that ratchet system in there, that it locks. Hmm. And they don't have to worry about holding it, okay? And so that allows them to carry stuff for long distances. We have to actively clamp our hands around something, but it's the opposite for an owl. But it's not just food the male provides. Being a scat guy, I can't help but notice there's a pile of it sitting at the burrow entrance. He's bringing some things in that for her to line the nest cup to make it nice and warm in there. Out of but, coyote, coyote scat? Yeah, because it shreds up and it's got fur in it. 
Oh. Yeah. If it shreds up. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. And so they're easy, they're light, they're, they're portable. Ah, how romantic. Fur-laced coyote scat for the entire family. But not just scat. And so there's pieces of moss. He'll bring in a clump of moss. There's a couple different kinds of mosses that he'll bring in from uh, around the depot. So she'll shred that and take that in there. Each of these sites, these artificial burrow systems, actually have two chambers. One is the living quarters, and the other serves as a food cache, like a little larder. As the chicks get old enough and mobile, they can start to scurry between the two different tunnels. We can see some of their tiny footprints in the sand. And so when the kids find out that dad's got food in the other one, over they go. And so then they make trails back and forth. So I said, yeah, all right. Dad comes back and he's like, son of a gun, there's a lot of food coming. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like the teenagers raid in the refrigerator. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's hard to believe, but David assures me there's likely a whole family of burrowing owls right under our feet. It's time to check how many baby owls this pair has managed to raise. And this is where the giant plunger comes in. One of David's assistants kneels down in front of the burrow opening and takes a long stick, like six feet long, with a rounded, padded end, and gently pushes it into the tunnel entrance to the burrow. This pushes any owl in the tunnel down into the chamber where they live, basically a bucket buried underground. The plunger stops anyone from escaping. Next, David digs away the sand down to the bucket. It looks like he's uncovering a landmine. He carefully unscrews the 18-inch lid. Oh, no way! Sounds just like a rattlesnake. Is that as intentional as that? Yes, yes, yes. Designed to sound like oh, a rattlesnake? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, because that's a, what a defense. Yeah. Right? And it actually, when you do the analysis of the audio, they directly overlap the call of the rattlesnake or rattlesnake hiss and, no and the owls. Yeah. It's not a call on the rattlesnake, it's just a tail, right? Yeah. But here, it's it's a real vocalization. Okay, here's what one of those chicks sound like. <laughs> and this is a rattlesnake that we recorded last spring somewhere else. Pretty incredible copycat. I've not even seen one of the chicks yet. They're lying down in the dark. But the sound is incredible. David stretches his entire arm down into the opening of the burrow. He's feeling around until he can get a firm grip and grab an owl. He pulls the first chick out. Oh my goodness. Are you kidding, David? Oh, are you kidding? That is the most delightful thing. Clicking his bill together. Yeah. Oh, no way. Hi, sweet thing. Oh. Bright green eyes. So you've never had your hands on these ones? No, no. It's the first time you've seen these these Uh little chicks? Yep. They're so small, a perfect single handful. They're almost weightless. And they're doing that tapping, that clicking with their bill. They still have downy, soft feathers, and they just stare at you with these owl-sized eyes. The eyes are so big, they take up almost their entire head. And their legs... Half their height must come from their long legs. Great for standing tall and looking for danger in the grass. David carefully holds the owl for a health check. Delightful test subjects here. So a little bit of flea powder, because they have fleas. Oh yeah. He gently places the owl in a bag full of white powder. 
It kills off any fleas that could be a problem for the owl's health as they grow. And so they'll be thankful about that. And then weigh them. Mm-hmm. 100 and 120 grams. Okay. 120 grams is about what a pack of cards weighs. One by one, David pulls out more chicks. They're really calm and still. There are five baby owls in this burrow. There are 62 pairs this year in the depot. And with three to five babies at each site, the numbers add up quickly. And it also adds up to a very successful rescue mission. But early on, David realized this could be much more than just a rescue mission, bringing these owls back from the brink here. But then after I started putting in artificial burrows, I realized we can really learn something, new stuff about where these owls migrate to. So the rescue mission turned into a 12-year search to better understand the lives of these burrowing owls, both below and above ground. After the break, where do they go in winter? The mystery migration of the burrowing owl is revealed. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. I'll reach in and pull out what we can, and then we'll push a little bit more. We'll get the kids out first. Part of David's monitoring process is to band each individual owl. He puts on a small metal tag on the left leg with a unique identifying number. It's a simple but really effective system that allows him to keep tabs on how many are returning each year. He lets me have a go at banding an owl. I sit on the ground with my legs outstretched, and he hands me a chick. Okay, works good if you cross your legs and you can put your legs together, right? Yep. So then the owl can sit right here, facing toward, head head toward you. You just lay him right there, her right there. David hands me a pair of pliers and I gently clamp a small metal ring just above the foot. Left leg. This is number one, one, five, four, ten thousand. Yes. Huh, okay. On the which leg? Left leg. Because it's a youngster, then when we catch it later, or someone else catches it, we know exactly the age of this bird. Okay. Hey, little buddy. And then that way. That's right. Okay. The right way up. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. I'll go slow here. This looks like a delicate process. Amazing how calm these birds are once you have them in hand. The chick just lies there on its back, calmly staring into my eyes. I can't tell if the owl is just trusting or scared stiff. You are being so good. You are being so good, number 10,000. I can't help but feel a special bond with this one. And a name springs to mind, as we're in a place that's been occupied by the Umatilla tribe for thousands of years. Say hello to the world, Uma. I think I'm going to name her Uma. Okay. Uma. Uma the Burrowing Owl, number 10,000.
After I band Uma, I lower her into the flea powder bag and then place her in a little plastic container on a tiny scale. Oh, Uma's big. 153. Okay. Do I get to let her down into the hole? Yeah. Back to freedom? You can just open it up right there. She'll run in, I bet. Really? Mm -hmm. I set the owl on the ground, about a foot away from the opening of the burrow, and in a blink... Oh, there she goes. Uma zips back down the tunnel into the safety of the underground. After 45 days of gaining strength inside and around their home, these owls will start flying short trips around the burrow. Then, after 90 days, they'll disperse, fly off from the depot until they come back next year to breed themselves. Until David started this work, nothing was really known about where burrowing owls spend the winter. It was just assumed that they went south, like most birds. But David saw a research opportunity, so he decided to track them after they left home. He put little geolocation backpacks on some of the birds. These units would track their movements while they were away. And all David had to do was wait for them to return the next year, recapture them, download the data, and see what it revealed. Sure enough, the females do go south for the winter. But the males were a little harder for David to figure out. The main reason is because they're more difficult to capture in the first place. Males rarely go into the burrows. They're mostly out hunting for the family, dropping those gifts of food and coyote scat at the front door. So David had to come up with a clever way to catch them. So I take a MP3 player and a small speaker system, and I put it in that tunnel, or the cash burrow tunnel. He puts it into an artificial burrow. Now, this is a site already claimed by a busy male owl. And I play the recording of a single, underweight, two-year-old male. Okay? He's a punk. He's a pesky intruder. I play his call softly. I don't want to be a dominant competitor. I want to be a pesky intruder. So I only play it so you can hear it 10 to 12 feet. What does it sound like? Just cuckoo. Cuckoo. So now this resident male burrowing owl thinks some other small, weak male is trying to take ownership of his house. The resident male, now, he's not putting up with that, a pesky intruder. So he'll, he'll arrive, and the first thing he does is give an alarm call, and then a cuckoo. Cuckoo. Forceful, and he'll lower his voice. I'm a tough guy. Don't make me come in there, you punk. I want you out of there. This is my place. So he'll strut back and forth in front of the burrow. His wings droop like a turkey. He puffs up. He looks in there. He calls. He jumps around. He says, out of there, out of there. I want you out of there. You know, cuckoo, cuckoo. And when the other guy doesn't come out, it forces him. He goes in. But you guessed it. Inside the tunnel is not a weak two-year-old burrowing owl an mp3 player and a trap the trap is an 18 inch long six by six wire mesh with weed fabric around it yeah it's got two doors swing doors but they only swing in it's a one-way door that the male can walk into but not out of and now he's looking at the mp3 player going what the hell <laughs> yeah that's right and he's, he's still mad and still kind of like what the hell? okay david says he's never failed to catch a male this way as they get older, I catch them faster and faster and faster. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because huh. I, like, I got no time for this punk. And so, boom, in they go. My record right now is 45 seconds when I set a trap, walked away, and, and one went in there. Ah, the power of testosterone. 
With mails now geotagged, David was able to monitor them and hopefully answer his burning question of where they go in the winter. The first time he downloaded the data from those tiny backpacks, he was shocked at what he found. Holy cow. All the females went to California and the males went to Washington. I would have never guessed it. Surprisingly, the males actually head north to Washington State for the winter. It makes sense if you think about it. If you flew to California or Mexico for the winter, you wouldn't be able to be first back. And you don't get dibs on the best burrows in territories. You have to then recompete with other males for them. Mm. If you stay north, you're a good hunter because you provide for the female and all the kids and yourself. Well, if it's just yourself in the wintertime, you can do that. But you risk the cold and snow. But if you're successful, you get to be first back. But females, on the other hand... Females, for them to be successful, they're going to head to California where they have a calm, mild, warm winter. They'll be in great shape when they come back. Because remember now, they need to lay eight or nine eggs, uh, incubate them for 23 days, brood the youngsters, and then you know take care of that. So they're going to burn up all their energy taking care of the little kids and incubating. Right? Mm. So in order to be successful, they need to come back in great shape, pick the right male, somebody their own age, somebody their own uh, size, you know? uh, a good provider male. So there's a lot of competition with the females for the males. Males stick close by so they can return to the depot early to claim the best burrow sites after the winter is over. And the females fly south so they can feed up and come back fat and healthy to lay eggs. This old military depot in northern Oregon has become the hub for burrowing owl activity in the region. David has calculated that his artificial burrow program has birthed 2,503 owls over the past 12 years. This can be a regional center for owls, a, a source population. We've got work to do, okay? And it is now. It is the heartbeat of the Northwest in terms of owl numbers and population. And uh, so it really has worked. It is truly impressive to see all David and his team has done here over the years. But the rescue mission still isn't over. They can't keep on building these artificial burrows forever. So what we really need to do is put the badgers back. They were here. We toasted them. uh, And now it's time for us to get get our act together and put them back out here. Part of the deal when the federal government decommissioned the base is that the Umatilla tribe would get back a section of the land that was once theirs. That section will become a wildlife refuge, and the plan is to eventually bring badgers back onto the landscape so they can once again create the burrows for the owls to use. How would it make you feel to see badgers out in these fields among the the, the owls? Oh, absolutely elated. Yeah, I can't see it soon enough. (laughs) Yeah, and so put me out of the artificial burial business. (laughs) Bring it on, badgers. That's right. From age 11, David has felt called to this work. And owl by owl, burrow by burrow, he's still living out that calling. So I wake up each morning, and I, as I start to sit up, I think about, will the things I do today make a difference in 100 years? And so I consciously use that as my guide. It's not about me. I'm doing it for the planet. I'm doing it for owls. I'm doing it for other people. It's for the health of this place.
This is a song we wanted to share. It's written by my good friend, Alan Lacey. He's the person who first told us about David's work and performed the song inside one of the igloos on the depot while we were there. And if you're feeling the need for some adorable owl photos, we've got you covered. Check out our Instagram at The Wild Pod and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. The Wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people like David who work in it, love it, protect it. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. One way to support this vital work is through my wildlife organization, Chris Morgan Wildlife, on Patreon. There's a link in the show notes. Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Paul Lister, Bob Yellowlees, Annie Mize, and John and Julie Hansen. Our production team includes Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Michaela Giannotti, Kara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Schmidt, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy The Wild, please do ask your friends to follow our podcast and maybe even give us a review. Thanks so much. Take care.
That was great. You're on the depot at the Igloo Sessions. <laughs> the Igloo Sessions, that's beautiful. Thanks so much, Alan. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.